The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of Through the Glass Columns, your weekly read-along Wheel of Time podcast. If there's an extra pep in my voice, it's because... Somewhere out in the world, you all are actually listening to us as we record this. So rather than being two nerds talking into microphones alone in our basement or spare room, uh, we now really feel like this is something we're talking to all of you about. Uh, so thank you for, for joining in and, and for uh, following with us and, and tweeting at us and communicating with us. Keep it up. We want to hear it. Uh, I know you won't now hear this for like a month, but that's okay. Uh, I hope you've uh, been communicating. So I will not blather on any more before I introduce uh, my guide through the wheel of time, our expert on this podcast, Mr. Tyler. Tyler, how are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Greg. And you're exactly right. I'm super thrilled that this is out in the world. And I'll be honest, when we launched this, I was basically planning on having a conversation with you that we recorded and then no one listened to it. So the fact that people are listening is very exciting. And we're just glad you're along on this journey with us because that's really what the Wheel of Time is. You got to put in a little time and I'm glad some of you are at least starting off with us and hopefully enjoying the ride. Um, So today we're going to be covering two more chapters. That's chapter 14 the stag and lion and also chapter 15 strangers and friends but before we get there we do have a little bit of ill-advised discussion of visual media on a non-visual podcast or however you phrase that that's close (laughs) enough for me like i remember go ahead (laughs) and today we are going to be talking about one of the chapter icons and this is going to kind of be the the standard for us until we run out of chapter icons for you know a good chunk of the rest of this book and today we're going to be talking about the icon that uh, appears at the beginning of chapter 14 the stag and the lion and this is actually the only chapter icon that we have referenced so far on the show the dragon's fang and so i wanted to just kind of give greg an opportunity since you've just joined the world what do you think when you see this at the beginning of a chapter does it tell you anything and then we can talk a little bit about kind of the in-world and out-of-world symbolism of what this symbol means yeah, so as I recall, the the dragon's fang was marked on a lot of the houses in two rivers uh, when the attack of the Trollocs happened, and there was kind of questions lingering about who had made that mark and who was signaling what with that mark. Uh, I will say that is kind of my second thought when I look at it. My first thought is when I initially made the social media accounts for uh, our podcast, you can't join Twitter without a... a image an icon for your picture or or maybe it's instagram it's probably instagram because twitter has the eggs um so i uh just googled wheel of time thing and uh 
up came this. So I first branded us with the Dragon's Fang, which I'm now deeply regretful of, um, <laughs> that we marked ourselves as uh, kind of uh, dark ones uh, for the initial take. Uh, but that out of universe uh, aside, I think it very much is what it promises. It, it kind of looks more claw to me than fang. If, it, if it's a fang, it, it looks more to me like a snake fang, right? Something with venom in it. Uh, it's got more of that shape than kind of what I think of as like a, a canine or or uh, or feline fang uh, to it. And that makes sense. If, if we're imagining a dragon fang, it would be more snake-like, more reptilian, uh, totally logical to me. Uh, but I like that we maintain the the black and white duality and that it's, it's simple. Um, it is, I assume not, but looks like it could be like a woodcut. And I assume a lot of uh, crafty people on Etsy have have done uh, wood woodblock cuts of these yeah. and, and make prints of them and so on. So uh, yes. And uh, was that all I was charged with? Yeah, uh, I, okay. I think that definitely <laughs> works. Um, so the two things that I kind of wanted to mention about this, well, first, before anything else, I just need to preface the fact that I am in love with the chapter icons for this series. I think they just work as a way of kind of highlighting what's going to be coming in each chapter, giving you just a little bit of a feel for the tone and what's coming up. And I love them so much that actually my right arm is dedicated to four of the chapter icons. <laughs> I have a Wheel of Time tattoo. I absolutely love it. I'm planning on getting a second one. Save it when for when we launch our OnlyFans. Don't reveal it all. <laughs> we'll we'll uh, have branded content then too. Uh, I <laughs> actually can't reveal it all. I have been unable to talk about my tattoo for quite some time since the TV mm. show came out because it does actually contain minor spoilers if I explain it. Um, mm. That being said, the Dragon Fang is not one of the icons that is on my arm, so I can discuss it freely. Um, and this actually reminded me of something that was actually on the episode of the podcast that aired today. I listened to it. Uh, mm -hmm. Some timey-wimey things. We're talking about episode three of the podcast. Um, and in that episode, you mentioned uh, when you were reading Game of Thrones, well, you would finish a chapter, say, about Arya, and you would like flip forward to see when the next chapter about Arya was going to be or you know whatever character it was that you were interested in seeing next that is to some degree the same function that these icons serve in this series there are some icons that are kind of dedicated to specific characters there are some that are dedicated to themes or you know groups things that might show up the dragon's fang generally speaking is going to show us one of two things either we're going to have a chapter that is kind of focused on the dark or on you know evil goings on. Um, that's kind of the indication that we get from people putting the dragon's fangs on doors and more or less accusing them of being evil. The other thing that we've noticed, I think the other time that we've seen this icon show up before, it's always been in reference to someone telling a story about a false dragon. Right. So this makes a reasonable amount of sense. I think the first time we saw this chapter icon was in uh, the chapter, The Peddler, which I don't think is an indication that there's something evil going on in that chapter, but rather it's because the peddler shows up and immediately starts telling a story about the false dragon in Gaelden. And so this is kind of our first indication that each of these symbols maybe is keying us into what's coming next. And this is actually something that I'll occasionally do. You talked about for the Game of Thrones, seeing when does that character show up next? Some of these icons have specific enough connotations that I'll just go, okay, when's the next time that one pops up? And it won't give me the exact time the character will be back, but it at least gives me something to go on. This one's a little bit less specific than that, right? It's just some things are going to happen that are evil or something. But 
I think it's really cool. And the thing that I like about this image most is the fact that, like you said, it's the light dark duality. And I like the idea that it seems like it is a kind of a white object, right? It's a, it's a tooth or a fang. And then there's almost this dark shading or shadow lying over it. And I think that's a really interesting indication for what we know about the dragon or false dragons at this point, right? We know the dragon, Luz Theron, went mad and killed his family. We know that male channelers, including false dragons, always go mad and die. And so this image representing dragons and false dragons as something that could theoretically be kind of light, but is covered in the shadow, I think is really evocative of the kind of things that we're, we're starting to dig into a little bit in the mythology of this series. Um, that's kind of all I had to say, Greg. Was there anything in that that you kind of keyed off of or, you know, it made you think specifically about this image? Yeah, I think what you just said makes a lot of sense to me. And, and we have strength, but this undercutting darkness and that, you know, it's literally the shadow as it, as it's drawn or it appears to be the shadow. Um, and then again, thinking of this more as like a snake fang, to me, that's also the venom, right? The yeah. poison, the, you know, while you can have the power and the strength, uh, you are going to uh, succumb to it eventually. And that's going to affect uh, whoever's wielding it. So uh, yeah, a lot in a, a small, simple image, um, uh, you know, because uh, those those were just brilliant things I'd said about Game of Thrones, and I'm so impressed with myself. Uh, but, you know, Game of Thrones is also has a symbol for every house. And certainly when the TV show took off, this became like the opportunity of a lifetime for HBO to market all of them. Yeah. And and you could get a T-shirt with each of them and a keychain with each of them and so on. Uh, so it's interesting to me that um, that is so much based in kind of heraldry. Um, and this is not, this is like you're saying more thematic kind of hints towards it, at least in, in this particular context. I understand there may be others that change that, but um, uh, yeah. And, you know, certainly when I've been putting different things together for the podcast and doing my half-assed uh, Photoshopping, um, there are a lot of these symbols that come up when you just search wheel of time and symbols or, or circles and so on. And, um, you know, they're often without context when I'm looking at them there, but I've certainly noted what a variety there is so uh excited for more to come so uh let's transition uh back to uh the novel itself so uh we joked last time that we should have called the show the stag and lion uh of course of course it's a pub name a tavern name yeah. uh so uh i'm gonna uh pass it off to you to do our summary especially because it involves a dream which you know how i feel about dreams so go ahead <laughs> uh you're gonna have to get over that dream thing with this series <laughs> I'm sorry, buddy. Uh, so the characters uh, arrive in the village of Berlan. They get to this inn, the stag and lion. And initially we see a scene where Moraine is interacting with the innkeeper and we kind of get to see what's on her mind. She asks about the white cloak. She asks about the goings on in the area, any oddities or strange things happening. And then as every good story does, we get bath time. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this is a really great scene from my perspective because we get to see Matt both at kind of his most thoughtless, kind of starting to spill the beans about the Trollocs and what's going on in the two rivers. And then we also see kind of the, the dynamic interaction between Tom and Matt and Rand and Perrin all kind of bouncing off of each other and trying to cover the story. Lan is unhappy despite how well they have covered themselves. He is very upset at them talking about this and more or less threatens them to never mention Trollocs in front of people ever, ever again. Um, 
after these baths, uh, they emerge and we briefly see a young woman with cropped hair looking at all of them who then immediately walks down the hallway. We'll talk more about her in the next chapter. However, after that, everyone goes to sleep and Rand has a dream where he is confronted with someone who is named, names himself Baelzaman. He uh, essentially says that Rand is a pawn of the Aes Sedai and they've been setting up him and many others and gives a long string of examples of horrible things that have happened to other people and lists a number of names, which we get at least some significance of that again in the next chapter. And then finally, uh, we see this individual, he tries to get Rand to drink some sort of wine or drink Rand resists. And then finally, he breaks a rat's back in the dream. And that will obviously become much more important in the following chapter when we see that rats have actually died with their backs broken in the inn. So that slightly jumps ahead a little bit, but that's generally what we're looking at is a little information gathering, a lot of bath time, and a, I think pretty interesting and evocative dream sequence. So given those three things and knowing your hatred for dreams, what did you pull out of probably the first two thirds of the chapter? Yeah, so it felt very much to me like the parts in our D&D games that are boring to me, right? <laughs> and, you know, and that's not a commentary on your uh, dungeon mastering, but so much as, you know, I think every D&D group has their dynamics and our group is not particularly strong at like, you arrive in a town, what are you doing? We kind of just hem and haw for a while. And then eventually you put in some kind of rail that's like, maybe that guy who whispered about a tavern should be followed or whatever. And uh, we figure it out. So um, this felt like that phase of an adventure. It's like, okay, we got where we were going. And now before this can continue, we have to learn more about it and we have to pull through it. So um, yeah, I have a lot of more specific reactions to, to different pieces of it, but I, I would say that was kind of my general feeling here as we, we met some of this uh, new area and some of this new town. Um, maybe one one of the first things that um you know is, is sitting here uh in my notes is uh just the uh the simple phrase this city seems to be a powder keg right that yeah. this is ready to blow it is uh you know the pressure from the white cloaks which we had hinted at last time and now we hear that uh the kind of higher level of dark tidings and wolves and and crops all of that has pushed the people from the mines in the mountains into the city so you have the townspeople who generally dislike the miners broadly speaking and they're all mixing together then you're having the added tension of the white cloaks poking around and trying to not cause trouble while causing trouble and you know that that might misread them a little but but uh but at the same time they're they're keeping a low profile so they don't get kicked out but they are also really trying to poke around and figure out uh how, how many I said I have been through there or are there currently so all of that to me is exciting and only purely from the like I'm reading this and bad things should happen so that I have fun things to read about I mean obviously I, I don't wish these characters harm but like it's exciting to think like oh I, I don't think we're gonna leave this city just like ho-hum on we go I think something's gonna blow 
Yeah, and I think the thing that really excited me in that section of this chapter is we kind of, you're exactly right, we set up this, you know, powder keg, all of the things are going on, there's the political situation between the mayor and the white cloaks, all of the stuff that you talked about, and then Moraine shows up, and Master Fitch is like, don't worry, this powder keg, it's not going to explode, there's no Aes Sedai in the city, and that's Mm. just an excellent piece of little dramatic irony that we get of Moraine knowing, okay, I'm the fuse that could set this powder keg off. And so I think that dynamic of this is a city that was poised to explode and now we're adding just a little bit of fuel to that fire, I think is it's a really exciting place to to start uh, kind of a new section of the book, right? We're finally out of the two rivers for the first time and to now see, okay, the world is actually scarier out there rather than more safe like we expected, I think is is really interesting and is a little pull the rug out from under you moment that I think Jordan pulls off really well. Yeah, and and then to feed into the next chunk of there, that obviously is what's motivating this tension between Matt and uh, Lan and this kind of concern. Um, My mind naturally went to the Hobbits again, right? Um, There's the great scene in the Fellowship of the Ring movie where they get to the inn and and Pippin's like, oh, uh, Frodo, yeah, here he is back here and points out Frodo. And that's when I think Frodo puts on the ring for the first time. Um, And so it felt very much like that. So I was saying, fool of a tuck under my breath, (laughs) uh, even though you would think Matt would be Mary and Perrin would be Pippin, but it's funny even just saying that out loud, how you hear the names kind of mingle together in some ways. So uh, my mind went to him and, and, you know, presenting him as a total rube in this moment, I think, uh, again, helps signal mostly to the audience, like the stakes have changed and this world has changed. And so whereas this might have been endearing and such, um, and actually there's more on that in the next chapter, certainly. Um, uh, What was kind of cute and quaint is now actually at risk of, you know, great harm not just to the to the party of characters we we love but but to the wider townspeople who are all already suffering um yeah any anything you want to say about matt and his being a rube (laughs) yeah i mean i just think this i'm just happy that we get a little bit of matt in this chapter in the next chapter one of my you know kind of complaints about the early sections of the eye of the world is that it is so Rand centric in a lot of ways that some of the characters who I really grow to love later on in the series, Matt, Perrin, Egwene, even Moraine and Land to some degree, we're, we're reading a lot about them, but we're never in their heads. And in a lot of cases, Rand isn't paying attention to them, right? They're probably having conversations and doing things that we're just not seeing because we're only getting one kind of look at how things are happening. And so for to me, I really love this scene just because we get an opportunity to see Matt out of his element and see kind of him struggling to figure out how do I keep being this like funny, boisterous, talk about everything, make friends with everyone guy while also keeping a really important secret. Because I don't think Matt has ever kept any secret mm-hmm. at this point in his life, much less a really important one. Yeah, and and you know you joked about a good bath scene, but but the metaphor is all written in that, right? Because you know they've peeled off their outer layers, they've set down their weapons, and we hear references to both of those things, and they're being a little bit more of themselves. They're I you know I, I'll stick to figuratively, although also literally exposing themselves to each other and thinking about you know how much of myself do I share, and just like you said, how do I still be myself in this new context and in this 
new situation. So, um, yeah, it's a good character building moment, certainly. And, um, you know, a bit of fun um, is had at, at the like just laying in the bath and moaning, essentially, yeah. <laughs> like uh, just feeling a good bath. You know, I, I'm not a bath guy, but I was like, maybe I should like enjoy a good soak at some point. Yeah, um, I'm not a bath guy, but I'm a sauna guy and I can relate mm, hard to that is. scene. Yeah, I I can't do the sauna at, at my gym because it's a YMCA and the average age is like 75. Yeah, that's like, fair. I don't want to see my future in this way. I can't do it. I can't do it. Um, so uh, I did want to, um, you know, you're our editor. So I'm going to say uh, drop in a uh, bell sound effect. Ding, 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 ding. That'll count. Yeah. Uh one of my predictions came true because I just re-listened when you dropped the trailer uh, episode. And one of the predictions I uh, mentioned was uh, I expected food. Food was going to come in. And yeah. we do have a reference to food. Uh, chickens, turnips, and hen peas. So uh, give me half credit because I think I said delicious food. And that does not sound delicious. And is presented as like, this is all we got because times are tough. Uh, but there it is food has arrived. I was actually wondering if you were going to bring this up, but my full notes on that scene are food, 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 food. So I don't have much <laughs> to add. But it's there and that counts. So, you know, I we haven't put in the like um, the prices, right? Like, bum, 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 bum. Uh, so we can at least give me a ding when it happens. Um, so I'll transition from there to something real, which is just across that scene, the main vibe I took away is everything is more dangerous now. Um, even before we get to the dream and the kind of dark one um, imagery and all that, um, everything is is dangerous now. Everything is, is more on an edge. Um, and so uh, they're going to have to step it up. They're going to have to really mature quickly because uh, otherwise this fellowship is doomed. Yeah, and I really liked, there was one phrase that kind of got thrown in there that I think worked really well to emphasize this, which is there's a moment once Lan comes in and he kind of chastises Matt and tells him, you know, don't be talking to everyone anyone and rand is kind of like well who do we trust right if this is just a random bath attendant how do we know he's a, a bad person it seems like someone who we could just talk to and the the response that Lan gives is something along the lines of, uh, I trust no one until we reach Tarvalan and only half once we arrive there. And Rand kind of like laughs at that. And Lan just gives him a look like, no, I don't trust a single human until we get to Tarvalan. And that seems to be the moment as I'm reading where it feels like Rand kind of gets that sunk in a little bit more than it had before. He's like, oh, it's not just we shouldn't be talking about this. It's anyone including the bath attendant could be the evil person who turns us in kind of thing yeah and and um again i'm thinking of tolkien and uh you know uh how there's a large section there and and frodo says something cool like um i suspect we can trust aragorn because uh anybody who we shouldn't trust would seem fair, but be fouler or something like that. And, and I think there's that kind of play going on here. It's like the innocuous can be dangerous and the ones who automatically feel like danger are perhaps more of our allies. And, um, you know, to skip to the end of the, the, this chapter, um, you know, that continues to be a troubling bit of uh, reaction to Moraine, right? That, that they're still suspicious of Aes Sedai. They've been warned that they are always acting on their own agenda for, for lack of a better term. So I think that question of, can we, 
still trust even these people is is valid. And while um, Land may want to keep them safe, uh, he's not going to hesitate to sacrifice them. So I think they're right to be a little skeptical of him. Yeah, and I think this is a really interesting change for the two rivers folks, right? Because I think all of them pretty much bought into the mayor says these people saved town, the blacksmith seemed to stand up for them. And most interestingly, Tam basically said, look, you can't trust them completely. But if they tell you something, you should believe it. And so I think for a long time, you know, pretty much up until this point in in or probably the previous chapter or two in the series, it it's basically these guys have been, yes, Moraine and Lan are good people. Everyone, our parents have told us they're good. We're going to follow them. And then it's not until the last chapter or two when Moraine basically tells them, look, you can either keep going with me or I'll kill you, that now, especially Matt, but all of them seem to be much more skeptical of these two people who prior, they had kind of taken at their word as far as whether they were good or bad people. And so I think that shift we see really dramatically in these two chapters where we see, you know, Matt and Rand and Perrin really worrying about not only what information can they share with the wide world, but also what information can they share with Moraine and Lan. And that shift in dynamic, I think is really indicative of how these books kind of work, right? Who is talking to who at any given time is very important in a lot of cases. Yeah, and you know, it's it's become a joke in a lot of fandom circles. It's like, where could two people having a conversation just end the plot on so many of these types of, of things? And and this was clearly one of those moments for me, again, thinking of the end of the chapter where he's like, I don't think I'll tell her. I'm like, just tell her. Like, you know, uh, one of those moments where we could just end a lot of the tension and and push forward. But, you know, again, I don't tend to to fault creators for those choices because they're being natural to characters. Yeah. There are many examples from the lives of myself, you, everybody we love, where if they'd had a conversation instead of not, then a whole bunch of uh, plot would have been <laughs> skipped uh, for lack of a better term. So I, I think that again, we have to remember he's writing about you know older teenagers and they're not gonna act logically all the time. And that's not convenient plotting or anything like that like that it's just writing who these characters are and maybe it helps a little in the yeah. plotting <laughs> and i think one of the things that robert jordan does really well is he gives his characters very believable motivations for not telling each other things right i think you're exactly right this is one of those moments where that meme would be like hey moraine i had a bad dream end credits right that's mm -hmm. kind of how this would look a little bit but she threatened to kill him in the previous chapter. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's very logical that he would be a little bit concerned about, you know, sharing all of this information with her. Um, that being said, I think we want to make sure that we spend a little bit of time on the unconscious part of this chapter. <laughs> so uh, given that I kind of have all of the, you know, background of what's going on here, and this is intended to be a relatively mysterious kind of building the tension sort of dream. I want your take on Rand's dream before I even highlight anything, just to see what someone who doesn't know all of the backstory was able to pick up on. Sure. And, um, you know, again, to to lift the the veil a little bit, um, I will be the first to admit we uh, read this like three or four days ago and then Tyler had a stomach bug. So we delayed. So I'm going to do my absolute best, but there might be details I've already totally. forgotten. So this may be a lot of my note uh, reading. So, uh, OK, so uh, we get a dream very similar to the previous dream in which we we have uh, hallways and doorways and balconies and tunnels. And there's some description of that 
that architecture. I kind of zoned out on that part. I'm like, yep, I get it. It's a yeah, dreamscape. <laughs> um, so then we get the appearance of the dark one and the dark one identifies himself as Beelzemon. I Close think enough? that's how it's pronounced. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh the interaction between the two of them is is very much at the heart of this dream, and it seems like um, it's open communication. Again, to continue the Tolkien theme tonight, it felt like a Palantir-type conversation, like these two are actually talking to each other. And so he speaks of a lot of things that feel portentous. Um, the first one in my note is he spends some time speaking of Rand's parents, and Rand reacts as if he's speaking of uh the two rivers uh right and i'm going you idiot they said that you know there's more to your lineage than is immediately clear so so i immediately read through that that he is speaking of rand's actual parentage and not speaking of of his father in two rivers um and and yet that seemed to have flown entirely over rand's head if i read that scene correctly uh my next note just simply says title of the book exclamation point uh so we got to the moment where they mentioned the eye of the world. Yep. Uh, and as I recall, it's that many people have sought the eye of the world and that it is a goal. It is a place of seeming power or, or uh, you know, of importance. Um, and then the section after that, which again feeds into this theme of mistrust of Moraine, um, was a real emphasis on the fact that he is being used by the tower and the Aes Sedai, that he is far from the first person who has been in this position. And every time there has been a hero in that position, he gets used by the Aes Sedai, the, the, the tower to complete their goals uh, with total disregard for their safety and outcomes. And uh, of course, that becomes a litany of names that I did not write down and don't remember, but specific examples, some of which uh, he will go on and ask uh, Tom about, as I recall, in the next chapter for clarification, like who was that guy and who was that? Um, that is essentially my role on this podcast. Who was that guy? What was that? <laughs> Um, yeah, so and, just for anyone listening along, uh, the names, I believe I got, if not all of them, most of them, Davian, Urian Stonebow, Guayer Amalsalan, Rowland Darkspain, and Loghain. And, and those are false, well, Loghain is a false dragon, and that's kind of confirmed in this dream that this is not actually uh, who we should be worried about. It's a, it's a distraction from all of that. Um, and so the emphasis then is that the 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 light is always constricted and uh, manipulated, whereas the dark is truly free. And that's the message he wants to leave Rand with: that if you want to experience real freedom and be uh, outside of all that, then then you have to listen to me and you have to follow me. Um, so I I just noted that Rand kind of immediately dismisses this dream, um, but you know it felt very real and seemed like he could be injured by it. And some of the threats were, were real. And then as you already alluded to, we learned that the rats were actually affected uh, at the beginning of the next chapter. Um, yeah. Uh, take over there. I, I have yeah. a little bit of riffing on the name 
Baalzaman, but uh, you can first fill in whatever I should have said. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you got most of the really important things. I think the litany of names is really important. I think the implication, and specifically when he's talking about his parents, uh, about Rand's parents, uh, Baalzaman specifically says uh, that basically his mother and father were chosen for the purposes of basically producing Rand whose destiny is to die in the way that the the White Tower has prescribed. And so that's a really interesting claim that I think we'll need to kind of interrogate as the series goes on and think about that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention um, is Towards the end of the dream, uh, Rand starts to say what we had identified in a previous episode as what's sometimes called the catechism, right? It's like the Dark One is bound at Sheol Ghoul along with the Forsaken and blah, 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 right? And he starts to say that. He says, you are bound. And then Beelzeman interrupts him. And my original plan was to maybe read uh, a decent chunk of what he said, but apparently it's almost a full page. So go back and check this out. He has what I wrote in my notes says the I have never been bound speech where he says I've never been bound I, uh, a few things he says he says I stood at lose there in Kinslayer's side while he did the deed that named him it was I who told him to kill his wife and his children he says a thousand years later I sent the Trollocs ravening south and for three centuries they savaged the world he said he whispered in Arthur Hawkwing's ear and the length and breadth of the land I said I died he lists a bunch of really important historical events, some of which we've had references to before and some of which he hasn't, and claimed all of that was him, his doing. And I think that's really interesting for two reasons, right? One is because it tells us something about um, how the Dark One operates, how the Dark One is trying to manipulate the world and get things in positions that he, you know, sees as advantageous. But I think it's also really interesting that kind of the the core belief of the world, the thing that you know everyone kind of relies on to say the Dark One won't get us today is that the Dark One was bound, right? The Dark One is captured. He's not able to get out. He can't touch the world. And what Beelzeman is claiming in this dream is no, not only is he not presently bound, he has never been bound. And all of the terrible things that have happened since uh, the dragon originally 3,000 years ago have all been his fault. And that kind of direct level of influence of the world is something that literally everyone denies almost as a prayer arbitrarily when they're, you know, just, you know, warding off evil in their own lives. And I think that's really interesting to see him claiming you're all wrong. Mm. Yeah, you know, I was thinking as you spoke that so much of this chapter makes the, the light versus the dark feel very much like a chess match. Um, but it's not quite that because you know, he describes the light as, as a chess player, right? Arranging the pieces, making sure everything is in position before they launch their strategy for their own ends and, and checkmate. But at the same time, as, as you're just describing there, he's expressing that like, yeah, but I don't play by any of those rules, right? So yeah. I, don't, I don't know the right metaphor. It's like, you know, the kid who makes up what the chess pieces do on their own and the, the pawns have a cool sword, so they just knock over whatever they want or what have you. Yeah, so. I, I feel like the, the, the version of the metaphor that immediately jumped into my mind is the light is playing a game of chess where their objective is checkmate and the dark is playing a game of chess where their objective is to flip over the board. And those are two very different ways of playing that game. Yeah, and it actually 
gosh, uh, my pop culture references are, are always so lame, but I actually am somebody who enjoys the second Matrix movie. Um, and um, sorry, oh, that face. Uh, yeah, this is, this is a non-visual medium, I should say. I gave you a face when you said that. <laughs> but one of the things I love about the way that universe is constructed, at least until this newest Matrix movie, is that you have uh, the the kind of uh, the the guy who lives at the center of the matrix who says my whole job is to balance the equation and that the oracle's whole job as a program is to unbalance the equation so it feels like that as well right yeah. like i am bound by reason and logic and this is what we have to do to maximize the output of these these humans and uh i just am not right i yeah. i have no rules and i'm going to unbalance it so that reverses the light and dark somewhat in in matrix mythology uh but um but i think that that feels the spirit here um, to your larger point that 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 really just shows that everybody's wrong it makes me think again about like well where did they learn these things because the assumption is the wheel has spun and so they're receiving this mythology and yet they've received the wrong message at some point now is that just the natural telephone game of generations or is that actually something deliberate something that somebody has purposely introduced into the the, the mythology to make sure that there is no protection or that the protection has uh, a chink in the armor uh so I think that's absolutely right. Um, the one thing that I will say is I find it very interesting that you are taking someone who is referred to by Rand as the father of lies at his word on all of this. I think <laughs> it's definitely worth considering how much of what he's saying is is true in the same way that we've doubted Moraine throughout this, we've doubted Tom throughout this. I'd give the same level of skepticism to Baalzaman that we have everyone else. Um, that being said, um, I think we're kind of running out of time on this chapter. So riff on Baalzaman before we talk about the next one. Yeah, although I am I'm going to just point out that that's the Star Wars fan in me because the Sith always tell the truth and the Jedi always lie. So so that's why I trust him more. Um, so, uh, you know, the name stuck out to me immediately. I'd be uh, I have some uh, literary background on it, but I'd be lying if I didn't say the first thing that came to mind was me singing. Baal Zaman has a devil put aside for me, <laughs> for me. And that, of course, is uh, not actually Baal Zaman, but it's it's Baal Zabub, uh, you know, reminiscent here from it. Um, but particularly the B-A apostrophe A-L actually invokes an earlier god, which is Baal. And um, I'm not the strongest on my uh, my biblical references, but as I understand it, uh, Baal is a Canaanite Phoenician god, so an earlier god than the Hebrew god, and in the Bible is referenced frequently um, as one of the kind of pagan systems that is being replaced by Christianity as, and well, first Judaism and then Christianity as, as time goes on. Um, and I think uh, fertility, rainstorms, but also kind of just general demons. And then that makes sense very much that as we move to Christianity, um, that becomes just a name for a general demon instead of necessarily there. Um, Beelzebub in uh, my my favorite of uh, the many epic poems in, in uh, Western civilization is Milton's Paradise Lost, which um, begins with Satan has been expelled from heaven and, you know, fell 
all the way to hell, literally. Uh, and and it wakes up on this burning uh, sulfur plane, uh, kind of given just an, oh, dude, like the worst hangover of all time. Um, and Beelzebub is another rebellious angel. So an angel who was in heaven, rebelled against God and was thrown, cast out by the sun and, and, and by God. Um, but Satan turns first to Beelzebub and um, tells him all of the plans. So um, he's very much a lieutenant, right? Because Satan, Satan remains the kind of focal point of that half of, of the epic poem. But to think about um, Beelzebub as uh, somebody who knows what's up, right? And understands the world while being a subordinate, not totally in control, to me became intriguing because, yeah, like he just alluded to, I kind of trusted whatever he was saying because he knows the plans. Um, but that naturally would beg the question, then who is he reporting to or who does what what power does he speak to if not a literal person? So um, that's all that's all I really have on it other than singing more Queen to you. So uh, we can leave it at that or if you want to react to anything. <laughs> Uh, no, I think the only thing that I would add to that is just uh, to recall from a few chapters ago when Moraine was telling the story of uh, Menethrin and, you know, the, the final battle of that great kingdom, she talked about how there was someone at that battle who identified themselves as Beelzeman, but her take in that story was there is no way the person calling themselves Beelzeman when Menethrin was around could possibly be the Dark One, because if the Dark One had been there, Menethrin would have fallen in hours instead of weeks. And so mm. it's interesting, we've got this conflicting story, even in in the Menethrin story, she says Beelzeman is one of the ancient names for the Dark One, but we've got this interesting contrast of like, as you're saying, is Beelzeman the subordinate or is it actually the Dark One himself? And that contrast, I think, is really interesting, especially given the literary kind of backing that this comes from. Um, that being said, let's dive into chapter 15. Wait, one oh. just other tiny oh, yeah. little thought. Moraine did mention like in one of their first conversations, she asked Rand if he'd been having dreams, yes. right? And was specifically concerned about dreams. I just wanted to make sure I had that detail right. Yes, that's correct. Okay. All right. Chapter 15. We go from stag and lion to strangers and friends. Uh, I've also just been watching the new season of Better Call Saul, and all of the episodes are structured like that, blank and blank. So this is, could be an episode of Better Call Saul. Anyway, walk us through this chapter. <laughs> uh, yes, so Rand wakes up. Uh, he makes his way downstairs, and he witnesses an argument between the cook at the inn and the owner, Master Finch. It soon becomes apparent that what they are arguing about is the large number of rats with broken backs who have appeared throughout the inn overnight and that upsets the innkeeper because no one likes to find rats in their inn um but Rand obviously is very freaked out by this. Um, he eventually goes and talks to Perrin, finds out that Perrin also had the same dream, is not feeling well enough to go outside as a result of it. Um, and then once he leaves Perrin's room, he meets the young woman, Min, who we briefly uh, encountered in the previous chapter. And 
she is able to see visions around certain people, and she gives us a litany of visions around all of the individuals who we've met so far, and I'm sure we'll spend lots of time discussing all of those images. Um, once he has eventually chatted with Min, he makes his way out into the city of Berlan, and there he has a few interesting encounters. Um, first, he runs into Padden Fane, the peddler who everyone thought had been killed by the Trollocs. He offers to give Padden Fane an opportunity to come back to the stag and lion with them or you know to get help from them and he refuses and eventually runs away at that point matt uh, Rand literally runs into Matt, finds out that Matt also has had the same dream, and that is when they have a run-in with the White Cloaks. So Matt decides that he is going to play a prank on them. He goes up on the roof and uses his sling to knock over some barrels, and it gets the White Cloaks uh, dirty, and then Rand finds himself unable to contain himself from laughing at this situation, uh, and the White Cloaks, specifically um, the leader of the group, Dane Bornhald, um, basically confronts Rand about it and it seems like it's going to go very poorly for Rand until suddenly the town watch shows up around the corner and the white cloaks back off. At this point, uh, Rand and Matt kind of regroup. They find Tom. They tell Tom what's been going on with their dreams and Tom immediately basically tells them, don't tell Moraine anything about this. Don't tell anyone anything about this. We need to get back to the inn. We need to make sure that Perrin is not spilling the beans about this dream and what's going on. They make their way back to the inn and when they they arrive, they find Perrin, who tells them that not only has he not told anyone, but there is a new arrival at the inn. It turns out that the Wisdom Nynaeve has been following them along the road and is now currently talking to Moraine, which is a conversation we'll get to get into next week in the chapter The Wisdom. Um, but before we try to do an entire episode ahead of the episode, uh, <laughs> in this chapter, uh, was there anything in particular that stood out to you, moments that you thought were, you know, effective or ineffective either way uh what jumped out at you in this chapter yeah so i i would say the first part was kind of what i expected and then it quickly became what i didn't expect and so um i really enjoyed min and her arrival and i i want to uh, unpack a little bit more of of how she's described in some of the language there um but that was kind of again your your character, your party is walking around the new town. Who do you meet? The next NPC that will get you through, right? Yeah. Um, or party member, right? This is the the friend who missed the first two sessions and is joining perhaps uh, because they they suddenly are in town or what have you. Um, and then uh, the peddler became a huge surprise. I was not expecting him to to show back up and to to appear again, uh, and just seemed shifty as heck. Uh, it's yeah. funny. I keep in my head. I really want to curse, and I'm like, no, we can't get that explicit warning so so i'm coming off as like a g willikers aren't i a sucker uh but uh yeah it's uh it was he was shifty as as f as the kids say um and then that was uh, i'll skip over that next portion just to go that was doubly true when uh Nynaeve, Nynaeve, Nynaeve showed up at the end. I was just like, that was more of a like, what? Like, yeah. uh, super suspicious that she's here, that she followed. We knew the ferry was destroyed. There should be serious questions about how she got here. Um, and I had also um, thought of her very much as the big fish in a small pond. And so to see her out of that small pond, um, I both think she can do nothing or think we terribly like misjudged her in some way if, if she can do something as big as getting here and having an effect on on the flow of this. So, uh, 
Yeah. Um, and I think I'll just wrap up by saying that's that's all a credit to Robert Jordan that, you know, we laid that groundwork with these characters and some of those characters have now disappeared. And so to bring some back around, um, nothing was tipped uh, that that would really happen with some and not others. I, uh, I thought we were sticking with just this fellowship. So this was uh, some some real surprises. Yeah, and I think this is a gift of Robert Jordan's. We haven't seen it too often so far, but for a series that I believe has over a thousand named characters, it is remarkable how often characters who we met four books ago, or in this case, four chapters ago, suddenly show up in places we didn't expect them where it still makes pretty logical sense. And I think that's something that's really impressive, right, is how often he's able to surprise us, despite the fact that we read a bunch of chapters where Nynaeve was the focus of discussion, right? We heard way too many things about her hitting old men in the head with her stick for her not to be a somewhat important character, and yet we're still shocked when she shows up. I think that's impressive. Um, A couple things I wanted to pull out from the early section of this chapter. First off, we do see a quick scene where Tom is telling a story in the, you know, common room of the inn. And I just think we get one quick section of that story that I think is important, especially if you know the name of the second book. Um, he said he tells the story at the end of it. He says, and I think this is a either direct quote or very close to, uh, the great hunt for the horn of the Lear that will summon heroes of ages back from the grave to battle for the light. And that's just a cool kind of myth piece of world building. And given that book two of the series, sorry for the spoilers, Craig, is called The Great Hunt. Um, that's something that I think we can, you know, pretty easily, you know, pull out on. I don't have too much else to say about it, just that's a phrase and a, a sentence that I think is really useful for world building and something that's worth noting. Anything to say about Tom's story? I don't think it was a big thing. I just wanted to make sure that phrase got in you know the listeners' minds. Yeah, no, that's that's very helpful. Um, yeah, didn't bump much on it. You know, it seemed like he was just taking the opportunity to make a few coin while while they're paused and you know doing what he does and. Um, you know, as the book has progressed, he's been seen more as kind of a repository of knowledge and lore, perhaps better uh, suited term for it. Um, so seeing him perform again was like, oh, right, that that's what, what he does. And that's that's why he's a traveler, as he would. Um, and a reminder about the cloak tips people off and things like that as well. So, uh, yeah, um, you know, and the, the other thing I will pull out of that early section, it's actually before that was just, you know, I, I think we've covered the the rats and how that is is kind of uh, noting that this might be more than just a dream. But I really like just the reaction of the two. Perrin is so troubled, he's going to stay in bed and, and like hide for the day. Yeah. And Matt's just like, yeah, shrug, uh, time to go see the city, um, which again, uh, you know, matches that kind of rube we saw at the beginning of last chapter. Um, That's like, oh, you know, portentous symbolic uh, threats. Nah, I, I want to go check this out, see if there's any cool food to eat or what have you. <laughs> and I think this is why I like Perrin more than I like Matt. If you give me an option between walking around somewhere and staying in bed, I'm kind of going to be staying in bed. Uh, <laughs> That is not at all a good transition, but I think this is a good place then to kind of move on to the next part of the chapter. Um, Let's talk about Min and the many visions that we get. I think to me, this is the, the densest section of this chapter, just because it's like 
image after image after image. And so given that, I'm curious whether there was anything that, you know, stood out to you or that you pulled out in particular from all of the kind of many different things that Min is saying. She kind of gives us what almost is a, a very mysterious monologue and then Ran runs away before we can get any clarifying questions asked. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I liked Min a lot. Um, uh, this language that I believe she says Moraine has said of her is that she sees pieces of the pattern. Yeah. Um, and it reminded me when we talked about Melville's loom and that being kind of a model of the cosmos, uh, right? A loom when it's weaving creates a pattern. And, and here we have a character who can identify these flashes of different moments in the pattern, but can't from those pieces really assemble the whole. So when she then, as you noted, gives us a laundry list of, of different visions, to me, that was just like, okay, here's what you're going to see in the next three books or whatever. And uh, not that I would really have committed those enough to memory to be sure of it, but I imagine if if I wrote those each down, I could use that as a checklist moving forward and see eventually I would imagine we, we get all of them. So, uh, you know, in my book that starts on uh, 253, uh, I, that's probably irrelevant to the listeners, but just so I, I cite it properly, um, so maybe I'll just uh, read uh, a bit of that, um, yeah, about about what she says, and then you can pick out whatever ones are useful. So, so Rand says, what do you see when you look at the rest of us? All sorts of things, Min said, with a grin as if she knew what he really wanted to ask. The war, uh, Master Andra has seven ruined towers around his head, and a babe in a cradle holding a sword, and she shook her head. Men like him, you understand, always have so many images, they crowd one another. The strongest images around the Gleeman are a man, not him, juggling fire in the White Tower, and that doesn't make any sense at all for a man. The strongest thing I see about the big curly-haired fellow are a wolf and a broken crown and trees flowering all around him. And the other one, a red eagle, an eye on a balance scale, a dagger with a ruby, a horn and a laughing face. There are other things, but you see what I mean. This time I can make, I can't make up or down of any of it. She waited then still grinning until he finally cleared his throat and asked. Maybe we'll pause there because that's a lot already. Like you said, it's very dense. So, so that is uh, the Gleeman. Uh, and then the curly haired one would be Perrin. Perrin and then the red uh no sorry the other one he's yeah, so he's is is uh matt okay matt, yeah okay and i mean especially those are just i mean those could be the chapter images right they they're just symbols they're just flashes and a couple of them are okay nice um and so we are not going to i'm sure know what those mean for some time to come but um, it feels like the kind of thing where a movie builds to that moment and then you just see the camera lingers on the red eagle or the 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 ruby or what have you. Um, and you're supposed to, as the audience, go like, oh, uh, or I guess do the Leonardo DiCaprio meme uh, pointing at the screen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, what this section does is it gives us a lot of really interesting imagery to be keeping in mind, as you say, right? It's the same thing where, you know, something pops up and you are immediately keying in on it. This is basically, I think, Robert Jordan's way of saying, here are 15 things that when you hear this phrase, it matters. And I think in a series this big and dense, I think that's really important to almost just have just signposts of, you know, if, if you are reading a chapter about Tom, 
pay attention to the White Tower or people juggling fire, right? If you're reading about uh, Perrin and there's any mention of a broken crown, like dive in on that on that image. <laughs> and so to me, this is almost like it's Min is giving us the cliff notes in advance, right? We've still got to read the book, but at least we know what parts to be pulling out. We know, you know, kind of what symbolism to, to be leaning into. Um, is there anything? Okay. We need to do at least one more dumb predictions moment. <laughs> Give me one of those 15 images. What do you think it means? Um, so one thing I will, will pull from all that is it strikes me that there doesn't seem to be a lot of overlap right? When she describes each, they seem very separate. And, you know, I, I could go on to read the, the similar list from, from Rand and, you know, I, back to what you said, Rand like leaves immediately. And as readers, it's like, no, wait, like ask some follow-up questions, but you also realize like he cuts her off because it's like, what do these things mean out of context? Yeah. Right. Uh, his being a sword that isn't a sword, a golden crown of laurel leaves, a beggar staff, you pouring water on sand and on and on. And, and like, yeah, that doesn't mean anything to them. Um, gosh. So to pull out some, uh, some, a few, I really like, an eye on a balance scale to me, um, you know, that feels important in the duality in the binary. Um, it could be simply like accounting for how the battle is going between the two sides, or like trying to measure who is balancing, um, which, which way the balance is tipping at a, a general moment. Or it strikes me also as, you know, um, he is, determining which way to go himself, right? Like he comes yeah. to a, a moment of choice. And so he's balancing out the two sides to see, you know, it's a pro and con list, right? If I go to the light, this, if I go to the dark, that. Um, so that that all is really intriguing to me. Um, uh, I don't want to pick another one from, uh, that was from Matt. Yes. Then, right, so that was a Matt. Uh, jumping over to, um, to uh, Rand, um, a sword that isn't a sword. Um, intriguing, especially there's there's uh, references to the Heron sword, uh, both yep. here uh, with Min and then later with the the light cloaks. Um, so it, uh, my mind went to that. I think there's some, you know, it, it seems like that is a sword. So you know that language isn't quite like a sword and something more or something like that. So it's right. it's probably something a little different than that. Um, I, I do like pouring water on sand, right? Like making mud, uh, but, yeah. but what is that? And what is, what does that mean? You know, sand is, is kind of a more stable form in some ways. Uh, you know, that, that's debatable, I guess, but, yeah. but water, you know, uh, removing sand or, or, or changing sand dramatically, um, you know, is that, uh, a wiping away of a tower or washing away of, of, you know, a society or a tower or a way of life. Um, again, you get a little into Nostradamus territory, right? Like what yeah. could that possibly mean? So, uh, yes. Okay. Clip that audio, put it in your magic <laughs> vault and tell me how, uh, I need the prices right sound effect when they come up again. <laughs> um, I, I think the only other thing I wanted to mention other than just the, the litany of imagery that Min gives us is, uh, kind of the end of that conversation. So first off, I think the reason why Rand runs away so much is because the images that she is giving Rand keep getting progressively darker to the point mm. that the last two images that she sees around him are three women standing over a funeral. Is it 
Bayer beer. I never know how to pronounce that oh, word. Okay. I, I always say beer, but I'm not even sure. Yeah. Uh, that uh, with him on it. And then the next image is a black rock wet with blood. And so if I was Rand and someone was telling me, oh, yeah, you're going to die and three women are going to be standing around you like that's kind of rough. Um, and then as he's starting to extricate himself from the conversation, she says something really interesting to me that kind of raises some flags and is worth digging into. Um, she starts by saying, if I told you everything I saw, it would like curl your hair like parents or something like that. Um, and then um, I forget exactly the context, but the phrase she uses when describing whatever she sees in her own future or his future is maybe it's your idea of a dream, but I never thought it was mine. And I think that's really mm -hmm. interesting that Min seems to be seeing something about herself around Rand, especially because she says that they're definitely going to meet again. And so I think that's um, you know just a little hint at something that otherwise we wouldn't have gotten. We're not just getting images for all of our main characters, oddly except for Egwene, um, but we're also getting some information about Min herself that she's kind of offhandedly revealing. Um, any last thoughts on Min before we dig into the second half of the chapter? Uh, no, emphasis again on, I like this idea of pieces of the pattern um, and then it, what are we getting in those dreams, but pieces of a pattern, right? And and even on a larger scale, right? When he connects, to, when Baal Zaman connects to these historical moments, it's, it's like expanding outward on that. And so that phrase you just said of, you know, I wouldn't consider it a dream, um, is that you know, there's a play on that where it's like, oh, because it's not a happy dream. So, so I wouldn't yeah. call it a dream, but also I wouldn't call my visions dreams. I would call them pieces of a pattern. And so uh, I think there's, it feels to me like a little, little wordplay there to, to make both of those meanings true. Um, she liked her a lot looking for more. And, you know, I, I think I said when we talked about my dislike of dreams, prophecy is often right after that because it feels a little too clever sometimes. And, and I'm not saying here, but in general, when somebody's like, do you remember that I said on page seven, the thing that happened on, you know, the penultimate page of the novel? And it's like, yeah, of course you can do that. You made the whole thing up. Right. And so, um, so it, it, it's interesting to me when it, is not the focal point when it's just something that's part of the journey. And so, so I'm, I'm more patient here. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the, the next big piece probably would be, you know, um, when they, uh, get involved with the children of the light. And, um, this again, seemed just like a total, uh, kind of, fool move on the part of Matt, like, let me just cause trouble. And we were saying at the beginning of the last chapter that it felt like a powder keg and it's like, oh yeah, let's just play with matches right, right yeah. next to it and see what happens and, and move forward there. Um, what I, what I liked about, um, Matt in this moment is the title of the chapter is strangers and, uh, friends, which, you know, plays on uh, all that we're meeting. But then Matt is like a stranger friend, right? Yeah. Like he's acting bizarrely. He's he's not meeting expectations. Um, and I guess I skipped over um, the peddler a little bit there as well. But but he's also a, a friend acting stranger, right? Like he's yeah. behaving suspiciously. The details of how he left that last town uh, two rivers is 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 left skeptical or is left vague in a way that is like okay buddy um so i think all of that kind of just mixes in here to say 
Um, the characters in the world are both changing and it's really going to get murky uh, as, as things continue. Um, and you said in your summary, you know, the town authorities appear and it is often felt like the town is a lower level than the kind of Aes Sedai and, and these larger forces. But here it was quite clear that the town is the dominant and, and they're going to leave as a part of that. So, man, that's like 50 things. So bounce off whatever in there you are interested in. Yeah. So as far as Matt's characterization, um, when you were talking about Matt and kind of how, you know, he's acting very impulsively and kind of, like you say, you know, really adding fire to this powder keg, um, it really reminded me actually of a line from The Good Place. I don't know why I keep bringing up that show when we're talking about this, um, <laughs> but I feel like Matt, at least in this early section, reminds me a lot of like smarter Jason Mendoza. And there's a scene where Jason is talking to Michael and Michael is like, well, you need to be cautious. And Jason is like, wait, you mean having a, an idea isn't a reason to do something? And like, <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about Matt in this section, right? Is he's yeah. like, oh, I see some white cloaks. I see some mud. Let's do it. There's nothing yeah. else to the way he's processing this. And, and that's, that's kind of Matt, right? So far, what we know about Matt is like, he likes to get into trouble. He puts some flour on some dogs and he doesn't think before he acts. And that's kind of our list. So yeah. um, that just impulsiveness feels, and it feels on brand for an 18 year old, right? We've all met those teenagers who were like, okay, you need a few more years, right? We both yeah. teach college students and sometimes <laughs> 18 year olds act like they're 15. And I think that's kind of mad. Yeah. And it's funny. And maybe it is because I teach students like that too often. Like I find it not endearing at all. Whereas, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly how it's supposed to play, but I I'm just annoyed by him more than anything. It's like, dude, come on, play it cool. Um, you know, and, and I, I have friends, uh, who act like that all the time when you're like, like, it's almost like, like we're in public, right? Like, like yeah. we're not in your basement joking around. We all went to a restaurant tonight. So maybe don't shout, you know, um, swears or whatever. Like, yeah, it's, it's a little bit like that. Like the friend who can't quite read the room, um, as a part of that. Um, interesting to me, again, I, I referenced it earlier that the heron mark comes up in that conversation and they note the sword and that means something to the, it means more to the light cloaks than it does to, to Rand. Rand still yeah. doesn't understand, but we're seeing that means more and more, uh, in this larger world. Yeah. And I think for me, what these, what this interaction with the white cloaks does is it really highlights how much Matt and Rand don't know about the world, right? This is their first kind of trip out into a city outside of the two rivers. And immediately what they do is, you know, they're just ruining the situation, right? Matt is immediately messing with exactly the opposite people who you want to be messing with. Um, you know, Rand is laughing at people who will probably kill you for laughing at them. And just the fact that they are so fish out of water in this scene, don't even know all of the mistakes they're making, I think really highlights to me just how how 18 year old on a school trip these characters still are <laughs> sometimes. And that can be really frustrating, but I think it also kind of rings true. And for me, Matt is one of those characters who in this book, I don't enjoy Matt. I have the same reaction you do. I'm like, he's just kind of childish and impulsive and not doing much. But as is often the case with stories about teenagers, as they grow up, I grow to like Matt a whole lot more. So uh, give him a chance. And <laughs> there might be a few books. 
Yeah, and I mean, to that point, I was I was just going to say, like, what is a, to be a good story, you have to have dynamic characters, and they have to grow and change, and so the starting point can be frustrated, and we are still not at the halfway point of this very thick novel in a series of very thick novels, so I think it certainly makes sense to me that this, this is the starting place, you know, something that's been happening increasingly across different fandoms is, um, and I saw somebody recently blame the binge model of streaming on this, and, and I I think that might be a, a good thesis uh, statement or a good hypothesis, perhaps. But people are totally impatient, right? Like yeah. they're by, you know, we just wrapped up the Kenobi t- TV show, which my identity was deeply involved with. Um, and um, people were like pissed off at episode two. They're like, we haven't like, why don't we know what this where this is going yet? And it's like, because there's six episodes, right? Like, oh, I don't like this. It doesn't make sense based on where these characters should end up. It's like, because it's not over, right? Yeah. And and so there's been a lot of that lately in, in, a, in a lot of fandoms, not just Star Wars, though that's always what comes most easily to mind. And I think um, having patience to let a storyteller tell you the story they want to tell is so much more um, convincing. Um, actually, my, my friend Colby used this phrase on his show, which I've heard a couple times lately, and I don't know the origins of, but the, his, his phrase was, I'm on the roller coaster to ride the roller coaster, not drive the roller coaster. Yeah. And, you know, I think modern fandoms have kind of lost sight of that. They're like, give me what I want now. Um, forgetting that, like, the whole point of a good story is to be involved with the story that wants to be told and um you know and 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 while i think fandom is largely to blame for that these companies react to them right they we get a product in so many of these fandoms that's like you said you like this then here's this um so uh yes so while all of that kind of post dates wheel of time or is maybe something going on with people who are just streaming the show i think it is a good reminder that you know the point of a story is to savor the journey and to take your time with it and um um, you know, and what better way than podcasting about it with a good friend? So, <laughs> yeah, and and my my version of I don't want to drive the roller coaster has always been like if I wanted to be a writer, I would have had to be a lot better at creative writing, right? You don't want me writing your your Star Wars scripts. It would make for really <laughs> bad TV shows. And I feel the same way about this. I, I want Robert Jordan to be telling the story because he's a better storyteller than I am. Yeah, anytime a fan takes over, it just becomes derivative. Like, yeah. do you remember that old thing you like? Here's a new thing just like it. And, um, and I think, you know, why, why I imagine this book series stands apart so much in the world of fantasy and has such a devoted fan base has to be because it does something truly magnificent and truly rewarding. So uh, I'd rather follow that ride. Um, so my only other notes, I, I mean, as you alluded to in your summary, uh, Nynaeve uh, uh, comes back and, you know, is really just kind of the, the cliffhanger to tune in next week uh, for, for the next chapter to see what's going on. Uh, but definitely my, uh, you know, if I was a cat, all the hairs on my back stood up. It's like, nope, this isn't right. I don't trust her at all. So, so if we're keeping track, I trust the dark Lord of lies. I do not trust the woman. So maybe I need to go uh, to some sensitivity training in the interview. Yeah. I, I think you might be a white cloak. We need to yeah. be a little bit worried about this. Um, yeah. I think we've covered all of the major topics that I had for this chapter. Um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to, 
I, I think I mentioned this before um, we started recording today. Um, for, for my money, the first half of this book is really solid setup, and the second half of this book is wonderful. And we're just about to get to the section where I'm really excited to be podcasting about. So um, stick around. It's only going to get better as we go. Um, before we close for the day, any last thoughts, Greg? Uh, sure. Just a little bit of podcast business. So next week we will be reading chapter 16 and 17. That would be the wisdom and watchers and hunters, another blank and blank chapter as, as it were. Um, and so that again, rounds out to about 30 pages. So we, uh, hope this pace is working for everybody and, you know, um, we're, we're still in the summer months. So we're hoping you're taking your paperbacks or your earbuds to the beach or somewhere, uh, exciting and lovely to do that with. Um, and as I alluded to, you know, we, we are now uh, recording in the future of, of you all, but um, are, are getting our initial reactions. And I just want to send a shout out uh, and thank you to uh, Kyle Scully, to uh, Director Benick, uh, and to Wampa's Lair. These are three Twitter accounts um, uh, that have really uh, helped us spread the word and shared this. Uh, we got a great shout out from uh, Coffee with Kenobi, which is one of the biggest Star Wars podcasts out there. So that was a thrill and, and really exciting. Um, and then we have lots of personal friends, um, you know, uh, my my friend Catherine, uh, our shared friend Lindsay, uh, and the list could go on and on, but we're hearing that people are starting to listen. Um, we hope you're enjoying it. And if you've gotten to this episode, uh, why not throw it on your social media and give a, a shout out just to help us grow this community a little bit more? I, I mean, come on, you got to chapters 14 and 15. You must want other people to read and talk about this with. So- uh, I will leave the rest of the podcast business to our usual outro, but wanted to make sure we didn't uh, get past some shout outs to some people who have been helpful already. Thank you so much. We're really grateful. Uh, even if you're just somebody listening to this, uh, Tyler was stoked earlier this week to see that there were international listeners. I believe we had an Israel and we had. There, there was a Peru and some Canada and I count Canada as international. I don't care what anyone else says. Amazing. So if, if that's you and you stuck with us as far as this episode, uh, definitely throw us a tweet or an email, um, all the details to follow. But uh, Tyler, it's been a pleasure as always. I will plan to see you next week. Uh, anything you want to add? Uh, no, I thought that was going to be the perfect intro of everyone. We're really psyched that you've been listening. We're so thrilled to have you along and we will see you next week through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend the show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.